John 4:43 to 45. A prophet has no honor in his own country. And after the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they themselves also went to the feast. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we are grateful for Christ and thank you that he has come as the greatest of all the prophets. We pray, Lord, that we'll learn from his example how we should be. Teach us, Lord, from your word and teach us by your Holy Spirit. In the name of Christ, amen. We're now picking up at verse 43 when Christ has finished finished in Samaria. And remember, we saw that he only spent two days there, as it says in verse 40. Well, verse 43, after the two days, he proceeds on into Galilee. Remember what has happened. He has been in Jerusalem, in Judea, in the southern, most southern district or province of Israel, Judea. He proceeds to go north into Samaria. And in Samaria, he encounters this woman at the well. And then he's going farther north because his destination is in the far north in the region of Galilee, the territory or region of Galilee. Now, why Galilee? Why there? Where, where is it and why is he going there? It is in the far north. It is next to the Sea of Galilee and the region of Galilee, north of Samaria. It's there that Jesus was raised because the town of Nazareth is in that territory or province of Galilee. He was raised there in Nazareth. And then during his ministry, most of his ministry was there. And he resided during his adult time in the ministry from age 30 to 33. He resided there in Galilee in a city called Capernaum on the, sea, on the edge of the Sea of Galilee or near the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus was known to be a Galilean, not because he was born there. He was born in Judea in the town of Bethlehem. But he was known to be a Galilean because he was raised in Nazareth and he ministered in Capernaum. So that's when he spent most of his time and most of his life. Well, we know where Galilee is. We know why it's important because Jesus was brought up there and Jesus ministered there. Now, what is it? What is it? And why is it that he went to that place? Well, Isaiah chapter 9, 700 years before the ministry of Christ, Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah lives in a period of time when that northern region, Galilee and Samaria, had been conquered and overrun by the Assyrian Empire. Foreigners came, invaded that land, and uprooted many of the people and sent them away, forcefully sent them away into other parts of the empire of the Assyrian kingdom. And then many of those conquered peoples in that empire were relocated and migrated in this northern region. So by the time of Isaiah, Isaiah is living and seeing this happen. He is a contemporary of those events. And in Isaiah's time, 
That northern territory that should have belonged to the kingdom of Israel no longer belongs to it because that kingdom no longer exists. Who's living there? Who's living there? Look at Isaiah 9, verse 1. Isaiah 9, 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. In Isaiah's day, Isaiah already calls this land Galilee of the Gentiles because many foreigners, strangers are living there and no longer belongs to the kingdom of Israel and no longer are the people of Israel the dominant population. They are the minority population. Therefore, he calls it Galilee of the Gentiles. And he mentions a couple of of the tribes that lived in that northern uh, kingdom or that northern territory, Zebulun and Naphtali. God dealt with these tribes, the northern tribes, with contempt because of their persistent, unrepentant sin. He sent foreign invaders to conquer them and to destroy them. So they are in anguish. They are in gloom. They are hopeless. The situation is bleak to them. But God says, in your area, one day Christ is going to come and he's going to come as a light to the Gentiles. He's going to come there in that area and make that area glorious, which is what he does in verse 2, what he says in verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. This light, he means, is Christ. He's predicting the coming of Christ who will live there, minister there, and bless many of the people there in Galilee of the Gentiles. That's why he went there, because God ordained for his ministry to be there. Now, we are also reminded of this, this very fact that Christ was not sent to the Gentiles generally, meaning he wasn't sent to foreign nations outside of the area that should have belonged to Israel. He wasn't sent. For example, he was not sent to Italy. He was not sent to Spain. He was not sent to China. He was not sent to North America or to South America. He was not sent abroad. He, that was for the apostles and the disciples after the apostles to do that. Jesus was only sent as it says in Matthew 15, only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He was sent in the territory of Israel and only there. God ordained it that way. And when God ordains it that way, it's okay. It's right. Right? Then this refers back to something we've been thinking about. And that is, if God's going to be glorified, people think, Or if God loves us, people think, well, why didn't Jesus live for a thousand years on the earth? Well, why didn't Jesus live longer than Adam and live longer than Methuselah? He should have lived longer than Methuselah, 969 years. Why didn't Jesus live for a thousand or two thousand or three thousand years on the earth and preach in every place, do miracles in every place and save everybody? Well, the purpose in creating the world was not mainly to display God's love, but to display his glory and his glory in redeeming some people and in rejecting and punishing all the rest of them. That's the reason. And this is also why he stayed in Galilee. 
Otherwise, Jesus could have done any number of other things in order to preach the gospel throughout the world. Further, verse 44. Why did he go to Galilee and among his people and among many of the foreigners and inhabitants of Galilee? Verse 44 explains why he went there. For, or because, Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. That a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now, in 44, his own country has reference to Galilee. It does not have reference to Judea. Judea, though he was born in Bethlehem, which is in Judea, that is not his own country, not the way the Bible is using it here. His own country is in the northern region of Galilee. Firstly, let's establish the fact that his own country is known to be Nazareth, the city of Nazareth, and in the territory of Galilee. We begin in the book of Luke. We begin in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Luke 1 and verse 26. It says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. A city in Galilee, so in the territory or region of Galilee, but to the specific city of Nazareth. And who lives there? Verse 27, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So that's where they resided. They resided there in Nazareth. Furthermore, let's go to chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Luke 2, 39. Luke chapter 2, 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. That is the parents of Christ after he was circumcised on the eighth day and after they visited Jerusalem, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. Then chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, remember Jesus when he was 12 years old, he had that incident in the temple where he was asking questions and, and asserting some things with the teachers there at the temple and his parents uh, don't know where he is at the time when they're returning from the temple. Well, then it says in 51, after his parents find him at the temple, 251 says, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. So even at age 12, they're still living in Nazareth, and that's their town, their hometown. Now chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. Luke four, sixteen. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. He came to Nazareth. Now he is an adult. Now he's 30 years old. Now he's starting his ministry. And he begins it here in Nazareth, in the synagogue of Nazareth, 
and it says, where he had been brought up. So Galilee and Nazareth are his own country, according to these words. Then we also find out here that it says in John 4, 44, a prophet has no honor in his own country. A prophet has no honor in his own country. No honor among his, in his own country? You would think that if you have your own countryman there, you know him, you're familiar with him, you would, you would trust him, you would understand him, you would have confidence in him and listen to him. But here the scripture says, Jesus himself testified, a prophet has no honor. No honor in his own country. This is one expression. It's a, one of the rare ex, uh, expressions or passages that is found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The feeding of the 5,000 is another one of those, but this is another expression or verse that's found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Let's see some more about why a prophet has no honor. Let's begin in Matthew. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, toward the end of the chapter, the last paragraph of Matthew 13, we begin at 53. Matthew 13, 53. And it came about that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there, and coming to his hometown, he began teaching them in their synagogue, so that they became astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Here we have a couple of uh, notices. In verse 54, these people are amazed that he's teaching and doing miracles, right? So if he's a teacher, who gave him the wisdom? Because in verse 55, he's the carpenter's son. He's the son of a carpenter. And since when do we listen to plumbers and carpenters, masons, right? When do we listen to lawn, uh, uh, lawn care takers? Uh, when do we listen to people like that? When they're teaching us from the Bible, correct? So in the same way, they disdained him because he did not come from all of the famous schools and colleges and universities of the day. He was not trained under Gamaliel, as Paul was. He was not trained under a major figure, or he did not have a position in a major institution of the day. He was not the high priest. He was not the king. He was not the governor. Why should we listen to him? He's just the carpenter's son. And we know all of his family. They are also just the common people, the lowly people of the world, the, the humble people of the world. Why should we pay attention to what they say? This is why a prophet has no honor, because typically prophets come from those lowly stations of life. 
Not exclusively, but typically, they come from those lowly stations or positions of life. They don't come from the top. Not often. There are a few exceptions in the Old Testament, but mostly they are common people who are raised up as prophets. Mark. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, the same incident is reported. 6 verse 1. Mark chapter 6 and verse 1. And he went out from there, and he came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. Here in this case, we also find the same, but an additional statement is there in verse 4. It says, In his hometown and among his own relatives, and in his own household. Previously, we were talking about country or city, but here he also means not only hometown, but also own relatives and in his own household. Relatives, extended family, right? In, in your clan, this happens. But now here... We have an incident of them not trusting him among the relatives and in the very household. And even in the place where you live, no one will honor you. Okay, now, in returning to John chapter 4, we understand here that it says a prophet has no honor. In the case of Christ, we see that, that illustrated. Not only do we see it illustrated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but we'll see it here in John. John also has given us indication and illustrations of this very fact. John 1, 11. John 1, 11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. He came to his own his own people, his own nation, right? He was a Jew just like the rest of them were, but most of the Jewish nation did not believe. It says there, he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. He does not mean all of them did not because John was a Jew, he believed, right? And there were others, 120 disciples waiting for the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 1, right? Verses 14, 15, the 120, and then upon his resurrection, five, more than 500 brethren saw him at one time. There were some, a few, compared to the millions in the nation, but the millions in the nation didn't believe. Just a few did, and a few received him. Furthermore, another example of 
disbelief is in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. After Jesus fed the 5,000 in one area, they followed him to another area. And when they followed him to another area, he begins to teach them some hard truths. And they don't like hearing the hard truths. And it says in John 6, 59, it says where he taught them. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And what is Capernaum? Why is that important? That is the place where he stationed himself during his adult ministry from age 30 to 33. He was there at Capernaum. They had a residence in Capernaum and he taught in that synagogue. And then when he's teaching there, what happens? Verse 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Well, in this case in Capernaum, some of these people from the 5,000, they come to the synagogue They hear what Jesus teaches throughout this chapter. They don't like what he's teaching. And they said, this is difficult. Who can listen to it? My ears and my heart and my mind cannot tolerate what I'm hearing from you. So they don't want to believe it. And Jesus knew this. Although they are called disciples, they're not true disciples. We can tell from this paragraph because he says they don't believe. Some Jesus Um, knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. And he even told them, there are some of you who do not believe. They didn't believe, yet they're called disciples. So there too, he's rejected. And they walk away. It says in verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him Anymore, 666, they walked away from him and did not believe him. This did not only happen in his own city, his adult city of Capernaum. It also happened with his own brothers. John chapter 7. John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verse 1. 7, 1. And after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may behold your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world." For not even his brothers were believing in him. That statement is from John the Apostle. Not even his brothers were believing in him. By Acts chapter 1, they do believe in him because they are in the upper room praying for the day of Pentecost. 
But by this point, they're not believing in him. So he has conflict in his own family. The brothers, the four brothers mentioned in Mark chapter 6, 1 to 6. He has conflict in his own family. So Jesus is this prophet who has no honor. But is it only Jesus who has no honor? Is it only Jesus who has no honor? Or does this dishonor also happen to us? Do we also experience this kind of dishonor? Or did the rest of the prophets also experience this kind of dishonor? Indeed, they did. Let's answer those questions now. This kind of dishonor is not restricted to Christ and to Christ alone. But the prophets of the Old Testament experienced it. We saw from our reading of Jeremiah chapter 26 that that happened to Jeremiah the prophet. Did it not? It happened to him. But it also happened to most of the prophets of the Old Testament. They were either persecuted or persecuted to death. Most of the prophets of the Old Testament were either persecuted or persecuted to death. Do you remember that Elijah the prophet, he had to flee from Ahab and Jezebel? Remember that? Remember also that Micaiah the prophet, Micaiah the prophet, he had to flee from Ahab, the king of Israel. He had to flee from Ahab, king of Israel, and he was even thrown into prison by Ahab. Ahab was able to capture him and throw him into prison. But these examples exist throughout the Old Testament, many, many, many. We can even see John the Baptist, the greatest of all the prophets, right? When he was preaching, he eventually was arrested. He eventually was beheaded. And then uh, we find that Christ begins his ministry after that. So all the prophets were persecuted to one degree or another, and some of them even to the point of death. So we have to ask, why do prophets have no honor? Why do prophets have no honor? We've already said one reason, like in the case of Christ. This is the carpenter's son. He's not a formally educated man. He's not a formally educated man that we can say, okay, he graduated under so-and-so famous scholar or from so-and-so famous institution, therefore we should listen. We can't say that. Now that is one reason. But what's another reason? Why do people not honor the prophets? 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Kings chapter 22. Remember Ahab, he has imprisoned Micaiah. Why did he imprison Micaiah? 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 8. 1 Kings 22, 8. And the king of Israel, who is Ahab, the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, who is the king of Judah, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He is Micaiah, Son of Imlah. But Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. Jehoshaphat is a good king, and he's now in an alliance with Ahab, the wicked king of Israel. They are consulting their prophets, 
and Jehoshaphat wants a true prophet to come forward. But Ahab says, there is a true prophet, Micaiah, but I hate him. And why? Because he prophesies evil. Why would Micaiah prophesy evil of Ahab? Because Ahab sins. Therefore, judgment's going to come on you because of your sin. So Micaiah boldly tells him his sin and the consequences of his sin. And therefore, Ahab calls that evil. And he says, I hate him. I want nothing to do with him. Second Chronicles, another example. Second Chronicles chapter 24. Second Chronicles chapter 24. Second Chronicles 24, 15. This is King Joash. Joash did good for a time, but after the death of the priest, he does evil. Second Chronicles 24, 15. Now when Jehoiada reached a ripe old age, he died. He was 130 years old at his death. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done well in Israel and to God and his house. But after the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and bowed to the king, bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. And they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. So wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this their guilt. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord, though they testified against them, they would not listen. Then the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has also forsaken you. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which his father Jehoiada had shown him, but he murdered his son, and as he died, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. What's happening here? The king, he changes course. He did good during Jehoiada the priest's time, but after the death of Jehoiada, he does evil because he listens to his wicked officials, and then the prophets are sent, and one prophet is illustrated here, this Zechariah. He is illustrated as preaching against their sin and predicting the judgment. God has forsaken you, and judgment awaits you. But what do they do? They are so brazen, they are so audacious, so staunch in their wickedness, that they stone him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. He's the Lord's priest, right there in the temple, Right there in the temple court. He's preaching there. They find him there and they stone him to death there. They don't even have enough shame to, to arrest him and take him to some other place. They do it right there in the house of the Lord when he's a priest or a, a, a priest and a prophet of the Lord. And they don't remember all the good things that happened. So this is the reason. Because prophets preach against sin and warn people of the consequences of their sin if they don't repent. If they repent, there is forgiveness of sins, right? There's mercy. But if they don't, then there's only punishment. But someone might say, 
Wasn't John the Baptist very popular? Wasn't Jesus very popular? Didn't crowds and crowds follow John and Jesus? Yes, they did. Crowds and crowds followed John and Jesus. And does this not happen to others? The answer is yes. It does happen to others, but only temporarily. They followed John as crowds did, only temporarily. They followed Jesus as crowds do, but only temporarily, just like we saw in John 6. They walked away from him once he began preaching. But why do they temporarily follow him? Temporarily and superficially, why do people follow the prophets, the true preachers of the word? Let's see examples of this. Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter 33. Why is it that there is this initial intrigue and joy and excitement in following the true prophets? Why? Ezekiel 33. And at the end of the chapter, last paragraph, Ezekiel 33, 30. But as for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, Come now and hear what the message is which comes forth from the Lord. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people and hear your words, but they do not do them, for they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart goes after their gain. And behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. So when it comes to pass, as surely it will, then they will know that a prophet has been in their midst. He says in 32, the people come and ask, and what is it, and why is it that they listen for a while? 32, because you, Ezekiel, you are like a sensual song by someone singing with a beautiful voice who plays well on an instrument. They like that part of you, the things that correlate to you and these things about music. They like that, but they don't listen. They don't care. They want to do whatever they want to do. And I think also he's implying that they are hoping that eventually you're going to back off, you're going to concede, you're going to compromise, and you're going to say, hocus pocus, sign of the cross, what you're doing is just fine. Don't worry about it. Your sin is okay. That's what they're hoping. But it doesn't happen because Ezekiel, a true prophet, preaches faithfully until the end. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Remember we spoke of John, John the Baptist? John the Baptist, he was eventually beheaded by Herod. And Mark chapter 6, we'll pick it up at verse 17, 617, Mark 617. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound him in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. 
And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Herod is a wicked man, but Herod acknowledges that John is a righteous and holy man. He's afraid of John because of the people. He doesn't want the crowds to have an uprising against him because the crowds like John temporarily. They like him. And he's waiting for a strategic day. A strategic day does come, so he eventually beheads John. But meantime, did you see in verse 20? He used to enjoy listening to him. Herod was intrigued. For whatever reasons, he was intrigued and stimulated listening to John the Baptist. Herod was a wicked man. John chapter 5. John chapter 5 and verse 35. Christ says this, not only of Herod, but of the Jews generally. John 5, 35, Jesus of the Jews generally. John 5, 35. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. For a while you were willing to rejoice in his light. Only for a while. And the same thing happened with Christ. Like we said about John chapter 6, and the same with John 6. Why were they following Jesus? Well, of course he was a master teacher, right? Of course he was a master illustrator, right? And he had the additional benefit of having the the power to perform miracles. So he benefited many people. In John chapter 6, he fed 5,000 men plus women and children. So he gave them food to eat miraculously. So when someone sees a miracle occur, it's stunning, right? It's astounding to them. They, They are intrigued. What is going on here? I want to be a part of this, right? It's like a show to them. It's like going to the theater. They like to see things like that. They like to see blind people see, uh, mute or dumb people speak, uh, lame people being able to walk, dead people rising from the dead. That's what Jesus did, right? He fed the 5,000. He fed the 4,000. He was able to calm the Sea of Galilee. He was able to do all kinds of things, right? So people want to see that. They are intrigued by that. But what is it about Ezekiel? Well, what is it about Micaiah? What is it about Elijah? What is it about Zechariah, son of Jehoiada? What is it about John and Jesus that eventually people despise? The preaching against sin. The preaching against sin. We also should ask the question, is it the lot of prophets only? Is this the way it is only with prophets or is it also with every faithful Christian? Is it with faithful Christians too? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Matthew 5, 10. We'll read 10 to 12. Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Blessed are those who who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil false 
against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These beatitudes, these blessings, are for whom? Are they only for the prophets? No. We all know that this was preached for the benefit of all of us, the believers, the disciples, right? The followers of Christ. And in this final blessing, he calls us blessed if we are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, because we inherit heaven. And he also says in 11, how will this persecution manifest itself? Men will revile us or slander us. They'll persecute us, say all kinds of evil against us falsely on account of me, because we are attached to Christ, because we are in Christ, because we identify with Christ. Therefore, they will persecute us. But we shouldn't worry. We shouldn't be sad. It says in 12, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Right? And then what? For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The prophets were unique in their office. They were unique in their inspiration. They were unique in receiving the words of God. But they were not unique in terms of their life. They were not unique in terms of their preaching of the gospel. They were not unique in the way that they should live a godly life. We should live godly. They should live godly. We should preach the word faithfully. They preach the word faithfully. Those are the commonalities we have with the prophets. Jesus says so in verse 12. He connects us to the prophets in those ways. James also, James also does the same. James chapter 5, James chapter 5 and verse 10. James 5 and verse 10. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He begins by pointing out that the prophets are an example of suffering and patience. Then in 17, he illustrates with Elijah the prophet. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Why in 17 does James tell us Elijah was a man with a nature like ours? Because he's trying to get away from our thinking, well, Elijah was a prophet, so because he was a prophet, he's going to suffer, and he has to pray like this, but not us. He's trying to make us realize Elijah was a human, a a saved human, a saved man, just like us, and he had needs just like us. He preached the truth just like we're supposed to preach the truth. So Elijah is an example of what happens to us. And what did Elijah do? Did he not preach the truth? And did he not preach to turn away from sin and from the error of their ways? He did that against Ahab and Jezebel and others, right? 
So should we, he says in 19 and 20. My brethren, if any among you, that means all of us too, right? Any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Yes, it is also our lot. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14, 22. 2 Timothy 3, 12. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Furthermore, if it's also for us to suffer, is it going to come as close as our family? Or is it only going to be with strangers? Like, the, let's say, from the government or from just uh, uh, gangsters and criminals? Or is it also going to come from within our own households? Remember, Mark 6, 4 says, a prophet is not without honor except among, in his own town and in his, among his own relatives and in his own household. But will that also happen to us? The answer is yes, Matthew 10. Matthew 10, 34. Matthew 10, 34. 10, 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. In verse 34, we have a conundrum. I thought it said in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus came to bring peace on earth among men. I thought he came to bring peace. I thought he's called the the Prince of Peace in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Yes, he is. He is the Prince of Peace, and he did come to bring peace on earth. But that peace is what kind of peace? Peace and reconciliation between sinful men and God, and then between sinful men with other sinful men as we live and believe the gospel. That's the kind of peace. However, it's not a guaranteed peace between us and others. It's not a guaranteed peace because others will rise up and reject what we believe. Yes, it's amazing to see, but this actually happens that someone who was a wicked man or a wicked woman in a household completely changes and then the other members of the household who want to continue in wickedness they rise up against the righteous man or woman in the household. This happens. It happens all the time. That's what Jesus means here in Matthew 10. Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. He came because there will be this sword and this division that happens in the household. And ultimately, we should follow Christ and love him more than any other. Now, someone might say, well, he doesn't mention husband and wife here. Actually, Luke does in Luke 14, 25 to 26. Luke 14, 25 to 26. Luke 14, 25. 
Now, great multitudes were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. There he mentions the wife. So either the wife might convert or the husband might convert, and sometimes both. But when they don't both convert, often it leads to contention and quarreling and even, sadly, divorce. That should not surprise us. Peter said in 1 Peter 3.1 that there would be wives who have husbands who are disobedient to the word. And in the case of Abigail in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 25, she had a husband who was a fool and his name was fool, Nabal, and he was wicked but she was righteous. And then on the other hand, we have Job. Job was righteous and at least at the moment, his wife said something wicked. She said, why don't you just curse God and die? You hold fast your integrity, just curse God and die. Job 2, 9 and 10. And Job's answer was, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not evil? See there? There can be this that happens and it should not surprise us. From the very beginning in the family, Abel and Cain. Abel was righteous, Cain was wicked and Cain rose up and murdered his brother. In the household of Abraham, we have Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was wicked, Isaac was righteous, and Ishmael persecuted, and even, I believe, with uh, the jeopardy of physical harm to Isaac by the time we read Genesis 21, and then Ishmael has to be sent out of the household. What happened to Joseph? Joseph and his brothers in the book of Genesis. They, They put him in a pit, Then they sold him as a slave, right? They sold him as a slave. And later they are reconciled. Later they repent. But at the time they didn't repent. They mistreated him. David and Absalom. David and his son Absalom. Absalom rose up against David in 2 Samuel. Chapters 14, 15, 16 to 18, right? And there he rose up against him because he wanted to be king. But David is king. And the rebellion had to be put down and sadly Absalom was killed in the midst of all of that. These things should not surprise any of us. A prophet is without honor, even in his own household. Then lastly, we've come to John 4 and verse 45. John 4, 45. So far, as I've been explaining this passage, you've noticed that I'm taking this group of Galileans to be unbelievers. I believe that that is the case. There are other interpreters who take them to be believers, but I believe the evidence is better on the side of them being unbelievers. An example of people who have interest and may be called believers, may be called disciples, but not truly believers, not truly disciples. And I think that will be shown also by verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. It says that they saw him at the feast. They saw him doing things there, saying things there, at the feast. Well, when was that feast? 
The cross-reference to this passage would be John chapter 2, the Feast of the Passover, John chapter 2, and we begin reading at verse 23. The crowds of the Galileans who went to the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover and also the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. At the feast, it says that many believed in his name because they witnessed the miracles he performed. They believed in his name because of the miracles. They believed that he was miraculous. They believed that he was a prophet. They believed that he had power from God. But they didn't believe in him as their Savior. Because it says in 24, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. He knew what they were really about, so even though they believed in him in certain ways, but not in the way of salvation, Jesus did not believe in them. They trusted him to have miraculous prophetic powers, but he did not trust them as being true believers and saved, believing that he would die for their sins. Right? These are the same Galileans in verse 45. They received him. Why? Maybe we're going to see more miracles. Because it says there, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. They were at this initial and superficial stage of being interested, intrigued by Christ because of what Christ did or the way he spoke or the miracles he performed. Because of those reasons they came, they didn't come to him for the right reasons. The scripture from Genesis to Revelation is constantly comparing and contrasting true believers with false believers. Either you have true faith or false faith. Constantly, right? We spoke of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4. We have Abel and Cain in the same family. Cain has a pretentious faith because he presents an offering but not the right way and not in faith. Abel presents the right offering and in faith. So there we have an example in the first family of true faith and false faith. John does this throughout his book. We just read John chapter 2, the crowds of the Galileans in John chapter 2. We also remember, we spoke of John chapter 6. Remember John 6? Many of them listened to him in the synagogue, but when they heard his tough teaching, they walked away from him. Right? Many, therefore, of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. John 6, 66. One more illustration in the book of John. John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 30. John chapter 8, verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. It says it. Indisputably, many came to believe in him. No doubt. Verse 31, Jesus therefore was saying to those Jews who had believed him. 
If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If you abide, if you remain in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. If you continue, right? Not just initially, not just superficially, not just with the immediate joy and response, but if you persist in the faith, you persevere in the faith, then you are truly disciples of mine. Right? Well, they object. They start to object from that point until the end of the chapter. Let's notice a few of their objections. Verse 33. We are Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. Then they say in, or Jesus says in 37, I know that you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Then in verse 41, they say to Christ, we were not born of fornication, meaning Jesus was born of fornication, but they weren't born of fornication, sexual immorality, premarital sex. They weren't born because of that. No, but Jesus was, they assert. Then look at verse 48. The Jews answered and said to him, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? You're a Samaritan. You're not even a Jew. And you're demon-possessed. This crowd says to them. Then, finally in 59, 59. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. These Galileans in John 4, 45, they are just amused and intrigued for a temporary time. Just amused and intrigued for a temporary time. And we might ask, why does the Apostle John present these Galileans here? Because in the next passage, at the end of this chapter, starting at verse 46, he's going to be in Galilee, but there's going to be an exception in Galilee. Someone's going to believe. An exception. Though the people generally didn't, There were exceptions. The remnant did. The few did. And so he compares and contrasts the vast majority of Galileans with a Galilean who becomes a true believer. This is the way of Scripture. To compare and contrast, to make it clear to us the way we should follow and the way we should not follow. Will we preach the gospel the way the prophets did? The way Christ did? And will we have true faith in him? May God help us to be so. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.